Hebrews 13. Wow. I put on the top of my my notes early this week, and I, I, I just put on there, first of all, review. Well, we'd be here all morning just doing that. Maybe, uh, maybe if we have time sometime later, but this really has been a wonderful look at God's Word. Um, like I said, what's instructive about the whole structure of Hebrews is that not only the old has passed and all the shadowing of all the wonderful types of, of the provision that God has provided for men to offer their sacrifices. Look, listen closely again how the book of Hebrews starts out. This is revealing. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us literally in Son, in His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things by through whom also He made the world. You know, my three-pronged uh, definition of, uh, um, and by no means exhaustive in the New Testament, this is one of them. Remember John chapter 1, Hebrews chapter 1, Colossians chapter 1. You cannot get around it. Jesus Christ is the creator of the universe. The Son of God, God the Son, became flesh. But look again how this starts out. God spoke in various times in various ways through the prophets. They spoke of a coming one. In these last days, God said, I am speaking in the coming one. This coming one who came to purge our sins, to take away our sins, by the way, also made the world. He's the one that spoke. He's the word, the logos that spoke in the universe, came into existence. And he is the exact representation of me, of God, for he is God, we, we read in Philippians chapter 2 and elsewhere. But he says this, who being the brightness of his glory and express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power. When he had by himself purged our sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, or excuse me, at the right hand of the majesty on high. And then he launches into his absolute majesty. He's higher and better than the angels. Verse 8, a de declaration of the Father declaring to his Son, the second person of the triune Godhead, but to the Son he says, Your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. This is how we started out. You know, a lot of people have an idea, if they, if they look through the, the Old Testament or they hear some of the stories or whatever, that, that is man's trying to reach an angry God, you know, trying to appease an angry God by killing an instant, you know, animal and, and this blood thing. What, what is this? this? This blood sacrifice is appeasing this angry deity out there that, that the world is flat and you better not go too far because you go off the edge and he'll laugh as you go down. I mean, all kinds of folklore of how this God is trying to be appeased because he's angry. I mean, we have anything from Satanism to everything else that have sacrifices of this one sort or another. You know what the genuine sacrifice of the Bible is? An innocent substitute taking the place of a guilty sinner. This creator who spoke in the universe leapt into existence became that for you and I. God is love. And in him there is no darkness at all. He who says, I walk with God and hates his brother is in darkness until now. That's John's words. God is love. He does not want to be approached so ceremoniously. He does not want to be approached half-heartedly. He does not someone, want someone to, to sing songs to him while they're... Uh, while they're uh, 
excuse me, I lost my train of thought there. While they're thinking about something else, God wants to be approached in his way. And that's through his front door, which is the Lord Jesus Christ. I am the door. He who enters in by me will be saved and go in and out and find pasture. Is that how I'm saved? Yes. Who says so? The God of the universe, the creator, the one who has the final say in everything, who will bring everything into judgment. The Hebrews knew that. The Israelites knew that. They saw God's judgment. They saw the mighty acts that he performed. They saw the tabernacle. They knew that it had to be set up exactly how God had pronounced it to be set exactly. From the smallest detail, it all pointed to Christ. Now we're talking about in a tabernacle, it could not have been a completed transaction because the priests offered the sacrifices standing continually, standing continually, standing continually. Jesus, the faithful high priest, did the sacrifice of his body once and for all. He went into heaven and he sat down at the right hand of God as a completed transaction. The old is gone, the new has come. This is our creator. And then on we go through, through this great epistle. How do we approach God? We can approach him boldly. How? Through the blood of Jesus. Remember John chapter 10? So now we come to the last chapter of this wonderful book. And let me start off by saying a few things about this Christian life. This Christian life, as we've talked about before, it produces something. When God enters the soul of a man and he becomes regenerated, something happens. There's a transaction that happens. God's life is infused and we are born again. There's a lot of things in here that talk about that, but let me just say one thing, that I, uh, again, that, that parallels so close. And I just say this by reason of it's wonderful to imagine these things. I believe that the Apostle Paul wrote Hebrews, as you all know, but that's, that's my, my opinion. But Paul does write this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren. That word beseeching is not a casual, hey, you know what, by the way, it is a, I beseech you, out of all the things I've taught you, out of the tears and out of the joy, we can see that in Acts chapter 20, when he, when he was leaving Ephesus, he said, for tears, the space of three years, day and night, I've not stopped saying to you with tears about the gospel. And not only that, there's going to come a time when, when there's going to be ravenous wolves that come in and so forth. So when he says, I beseech you, he doesn't take that casually. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God. What mercies? The mercies that have gone on before. God has had mercy on us in Christ that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. It's a, present your body as, as the living sacrifice. Your, your, your life is on the altar. God, thou art you're my flame. Consume me. It changes something. This born again, it's not an experience as some people think to think it is. Well, I've experienced I was born again one time. There are testimonies, if you care to find them, you can find them on the internet, or you can just look up uh, these experiences under people like Dave Hunt and elsewhere. So many people say, I, I, I used to be a born-again Christian. Or when I went to college, I, I became born again, but now I don't know what to believe. Um, you know, I, I, there's so many born-again experiences. No, it's not an experience. It is a changed life. It's from death into life. 
and it produces something. It produces not only pureness of life as we go on through this life, progressive sanctification as, as some people call it, but let's, let's look at, at the end of this wonderful book, we've gone through the Creator becoming the Redeemer, and that's important. Our Creator has become our Redeemer. That's why we can know our Creator. God is a knowing God. We've talked about that a lot on Wednesday night, going through the prophets and so forth. What is different in Daniel's day versus the idols and the false gods of, of the Babylonians? Daniel's God was personable. He was a delivering God. He was a knowable God. Remember that on Wednesday? Absolutely fantastic. He is a knowable God. He's the Savior. And this produces a changed life. John says, those that know him ought to walk even as he walked. And he has a lot to say that about those that say that they know him, and yet they walk in darkness. They say that they know him, yet they hate their brother. They say that they know him, yet they commit adultery in their wife. They say that they know him, and on and on and on. How can you say that you love, or you know, you hate somebody who you can see, and yet you say that you love somebody who you can't see? That doesn't make sense. There has to be, you can't give what you don't have. So Paul says in Romans 5, 5, that the love of God has been shed abroad in our hearts. That's how we know, because God is love. So it produces changed life. Hebrews 13, this is a fitting way to, to end this wonderful book. You know, I know a lot of people that have gone to church for years. They are no better at the end of their going to church for all these years than they were at the beginning of knowing God. And there was a lot of these people that were, these Hebrews were becoming Christians and they were coming right up to, you know, the threshold of salvation and they were being pressured either to go back or they're receiving persecution. And like I said before, that was alien. If you read the Old Testament, especially the book of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, you see that the precedent of God for his people, earthly people was the evidence of them was God blessing them. You, if they obeyed God, he would bless them. Their kneading bowl would never run dry. Their cattle would never be sterile. I mean, on and on and on. So for a Jew to come to the threshold of Christ and, and all of a sudden witness this persecution, they, the letter was written, don't go back, don't go back. And this is why. Man loves to have something involving his salvation. So if I just go through the steps, if I just offer the right sacrifices, what did Paul say? Again, in Philippians chapter 3. He said, I was a Pharisee of all Pharisees. I did everything just right. In according to the law, I was blameless. Now one who doesn't rightly divide the word of truth, well, wait a minute, there's a contradiction there because nobody has kept the law, I thought. Nobody has kept the law, but a strict Jew was blameless in the law because he offered the right sacrifices, and he offered the right ordinances, and the right ritual understanding in the law. He was held blameless, not sinless, but blameless. No other Jew could come to him and say, hey, buddy, you're violating you know, the, the temporal rights or whatever. So Paul said that. I was astute, so therefore I was blameless. And in the world... We are considered blameless when we're an upright guy. We treat our wife right, we do everything right, we go to church, you know, and, and all that. And the world looks at that. But when, when the world realizes that, no, that we are saved by the shed blood of Christ, that my sins are forgiven and I'm a new creation, then there's a problem. Then persecution starts to arise. I remember one time at my desk, I wrote a list of things I found in the Word concerning what a Christian should be. An upright person, a person full of integrity, you know, a person that guards his mouth. There's a few other things. It was a humbling experience. But I knew it was right. Does God condemn me? No. There's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. God doesn't condemn me. God instructs me. God corrects me. God gives me his Holy Spirit who guides me into all truth. God opens up his scriptures. 
Wouldn't that be wouldn't that be totally horrendous if God expected you to to know everything and to follow him explicitly and yet kept his word concealed? But he opens up his word through the Holy Spirit. We are spiritual beings. His spirit bears witness with our spirit that we're children of God. He opens up his word to us. Let brotherly love continue. Do not forget to entertain strangers, for by so doing some have unwittingly entertained angels. He used to frighten me. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them, those who are mistreated, since you yourselves are also, or excuse me, are in the body also. Marriage is honorable among all, and the bed undefiled, but fornicators and adulterers God will judge. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have, for he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. When we get to that in that verse, we're going to go back and do Deuteronomy chapter 31. We'll see where I get the word fail in that. God is absolutely wonderful. Verse 6, so we can may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? We'll get into Psalm 56 and see set a couple of things in there. It's it. You know, God is, opens up his word in such a way that he doesn't overwhelm the man. He progressively, precept upon precept, line upon line. You know, it's much like the precedent when the Israelites are going into their land. God says, I'm not going to clear everything out at once lest they overtake you. And that's the way of the Christian life. It produces something, and it's a continual uh, growth in life. Verse 7, remember those who have rule over you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the conduct, or excuse me, the outcome of their conduct. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. I'll stop at verse 9 and we'll, we'll get back. Do not be carried about with various and strange doctrines, for it is good that the heart be established by grace, not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. And then we're going to read down about the altar and so forth. Let brotherly love continue. Brotherly love, wow. You know, it was said that at the latter years of the Apostle John's life, he was carried around to the, uh, the churches there in Asia. And his one reigning declaration, if you will, and you find it in all his epistles, is love. God is love. Brethren, we must love one another. Forgive one another as Christ has forgiven you. What is it like to love a brother? You love a brother, you forgive them because Christ has forgiven you. You love them because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts. Brotherly love is not holding a grudge against your brother. Go into 2 Timothy chapter 3 and see that list in there. In the last days, perilous times will come. Four, and he's listing people, and one of them is that they refuse to be reconciled. They're irreconcilable. They can't be placated. Or placated, excuse me. They, can't, they just refuse. They're offended, and that's it. Boom. Well, listen, if you and I did that way with the Lord Jesus Christ, we'd all be on our road to hell. We've all offended our Creator. We've all offended Him before and certainly after our salvation. Love covers a multitude of sins. And it is difficult. I heard it explained this way. Loving our brethren on a consistent basis is like getting warm next to a porcupine. It's difficult. It stings. It hurts. But that is what long-suffering is. And our God is long-suffering. It's bearing under a load that hurts patiently. Remember going through the prophets. Think of all the hundreds and hundreds of years. We're just completing uh, Hosea. Wait till we get into Amos and, and Obadiah and Nahum. All, God has produced a line of people 
and I only say produced in the fact that he chose them, that are continually going astray. Constantly. It's like Mike was saying earlier. They're just bent. We're, they're bent. You know? While Moses was up on the mountain receiving God's precious law, they're down there playing. Brotherly love. Do we really love one another? Or would you just say that? Brother, I love you as long as you don't inconvenience me. <laughs> Think about that one. I love you as long as you don't inconvenience me. Oh, we don't say that, but we think that. How about this one? This is a, this is a huge one. Oh, brother, I'll pray for you. Don't worry, I'll pray for you. Do we? We need to pray without ceasing. Our brothers and sisters in Christ are such a gem and of priceless worth in Jesus' eyes, shouldn't they be in ours? We're small here. Let's grow here and learn to love here. Because as I as I've was told years ago, and it is true, if your Christianity isn't happening at home, don't think it's going to happen out there. You know, it's not. You can fool out there. And you can fool a lot of people. But if you live with, with a spouse or your, your kids or whatever, what would they say about you if, if secretly somebody interviewed them? Do they know your love? To know your commitment. You know, that's one thing about brotherly love is commitment. Are we committed to each other day in and day out? Or, you know, it, does it seem good at the time and, and maybe it doesn't seem good at other times? But I think it's fitting that with in this context, we're going to see Jesus Christ, verse 8, the same yesterday, today, today and forever. Verse 7, remember those that have taught you their conduct. Go on to verse 17, obey the, those, who guide, actually those who guide you. Submissive, they watch out for your souls. They will give an account. All these things in context. Remember, take the word of God in context. We see that brotherly love is more than just lip service. It's something from the heart. Do not forget to entertain strangers. For doing so, some have unwillingly entertained angels. You know, I think most of you, I know what it did with me when I was looking at this verse, um, Genesis 18 and 19 come into account. Remember the Genesis 19, that's about Sodom and Gomorrah and so forth. How that there was, well, there was three men that came to Abraham, remember? And two of them went on to Sodom. I believe the third one, there's no dispute, the best pre-incarnate Christ. But nonetheless, the two went on. They were entertaining angels. Abraham was entertaining the messengers from God. Now, what that means today, I don't really know. All I know is that God can do anything. He can do anything. And that's another thing that, that really grieves the Lord when you have these denominational differences and one believes in tongues, the other don't. One believes in healings, the other don't. You know, I've been asked several times, what do you think about tongues? Do you speak in tongues? What do you think about healings? My personal opinion, and my, based on what I see in the Word of God, is that, you know, God can do whatever He wants to do. But we do know this, that whatever God does is done decently and in order and for edification, for our good and His glory. I can tell you for, for a surety, when Balaam was spoken to by his donkey, he was frightful and he was fearful and he gave the glory to God. God can do anything. I don't have a problem with Jonah and the whale. I don't have a problem with the, you know people going through a Red Sea. I don't have the problem with the Jews going to a rushing uh, Jordan River, having it dry up and heap on each side. Before I don't have any, any problem with any of that stuff because I settled in my heart years ago that God can do anything. That is nothing. God spoke and all this came into existence. So if God wants to bring one of his messengers to your door or to your situation, 
He can do that. Are we so closed-minded to say, no, that just happens then? Think about that. He can do whatever he wants to do. Abraham was a man of God, and look how he, how he treated that. And by the way, those men that went there was a perfect example of how the world treats anything godly. What did the men of Sodom do? They wanted to abuse them. They was the knowledge of judgment that fell on that. Have you, you all know Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you ever read that lately? If you haven't read that lately, you, you, maybe you should because it is a fitting example of a lot of people. Yes, Lot was a godly man, but yet Lot had lost his testimony. So when the angels came in and said, do you have any other, other family members here? They knew he did. Yeah, we do. I have my, you know, my, my daughters, their husbands, and my wife. You tell them to get out of here because judgment's falling. See, God doesn't do things just to amuse the curiosity. Whatever God does, he does for a reason. And Lot went to tell his sons-in-law, and they, it, he appeared to be joking to them. He had lost his, his, his character. He lost his seriousness. But nonetheless, we must be, treat everybody with respect. Everybody that comes to your door, everybody that rubs you away, do his best, the Bible says, to be at peace with them. And if you can't have peace with them, just leave them alone. Just leave them alone. If there's somebody in your life that you don't have peace with, instead of running at the mouth, causing divisions, causing this and that, and usually to the harm of the name of Christ, just leave them alone. Have peace. Remember the prisoners as if chained with them. Those who are mistreated since yourselves are in the body also. Paul was constantly writing, he wrote to the Colossians chapter 4, Remember my chains, grace be with you. He wrote in 1 Corinthians 12, And if one member suffers, all the members suffer with it. And he also writes in 1 Corinthians 12, You are the body of Christ and members individually. We're all members of this body. I don't know if you've, how much you know about the persecuted church around the world. One good place to start at would be that, you know, uh, you know, Fox's Book of Martyrs or, you know, the Voice of the Martyrs is a great publication, is free or what have you. But, you know, there's people even now that are suffering immensely in prisons, in prison cells. And they're not like the ones over here. You know, they're, they're, they're being beheaded. I was reading of an incident just the other day. It made my skin crawl. How a family of, of a man and wife and their, their two small children, they were spreading the gospel. And I, I want to say it was in Malaysia. I don't know what country over there it was. They broke in and in front of the wife, they shot the husband in front of her, and they turned to the kids and said, if you denounce your, your faith in Jesus Christ, and they said no, and they nabbed the children and left, left the dead, bleeding husband on the floor, the wife to watch it, that was two years ago, they have not found the kids since. This stuff happens all the time. We need to remember our brethren, remember the prisoners. Paul was constantly saying, remember my chains. Pray for me. Pray for my deliverance. You know, we have it so easy. I was thinking when I was reading that account, man, if my, if my wife, that would happen to my wife or vice versa, over here we don't think of, any, of that happening. But it's, it's, I believe it's coming. Remember them. As if chained with them. A part of brotherly love. Because one part of the body hurts, the other hurts. 
We've experienced that here, just in our small fellowship. We should hurt with those that hurt and offer comfort. And if need be, weep with them. Part of brotherly love, a changed life. You're not going to hear this much. You're not going to hear anything about the life and character of Christians except from the godly churches. Now we want to hear save the earth, you know, and, and the environmentalism and this, this, you know, this, all this green stuff and, and save the earth and, and uh, peace plan, you know, everybody's going to be saved and, and all that. But there's never anything about the character of, of the Christian. The Christian is supposed to be impeccable. The Christian is supposed to be one that is known by his character. You know, I don't know how, how often people that speak of knowing God is, is very much of a, a topic. But you might, this might help you because it's helped me, and I, and I look at it frequently. It's in Jeremiah, I'll just read it, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. I've read it many times before. But this is God. Therefore, thus says the Lord, he's speaking to us. Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom. Does that sound like today? Let not the mighty man glory in his might. Does that sound like today? Nor let the rich man glory in his riches. Does that sound like it is today? Listen to this. But let him who glories glory in this. You want to glory? You want to have room to boast, if you will? Do it in this. That he understands and knows me. God wants us to know him, to understand him. Well, God's unknowable. No, he is not. We will never fathom the riches of God. He is way beyond our finite thinking. But he is knowable. That's the first thing. Think about that. God is knowable. I, I can know the one who created me. That is astounding. I can understand a little bit about him. His mercy, his kindness, his grace. Like we said before, how do I know, how does God treat me on a day-to-day -day basis? But he says, let him glory his glory in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth. And then he says, in these things I delight, says the Lord. We need to understand God. Brotherly love is part of that. Entertaining those that God might send you away is another part of that. Remembering our brethren, verse 3, that are persecuted, that are hurting. Do we hurt? Do we care? Or is it just our immediate circle that, that we care about if it gets pinched and gets offended? That's the body of Christ. Jesus Christ died for these people on the cross. They turn to him. They are his, and he is allowing them to go through persecution for whatever reason. And some of it is horrible. Look at verse 5. Let your conduct be without covetousness. Wow. Be content with such things as you have. Are you serious? Be content with things that we have? We're always wanting more. Always wanting more. You know... The reason why I... I if some of you have probably noticed, I jumped over verse 4. What do you think adultery is? It's covetousness. What do you think lewdness is? It's covetousness. We could go on and on and on. Let me read you something that, and I'm sure that it's in Ephesians chapter 5. Anyway, getting back to verse 4, I just wanted to point that out. Marriage is honorable. Among all, and the bed and defiled, fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. And we know what an adulterer is. We know what a fornicator is. Do you know what an adulterer is? I didn't until I became a Christian. I was not an adulterer when somebody went out on his wife. No, that's not what an adulterer is. An adulterer is somebody that lusts after a woman in his heart. That's where adultery starts. It's covetousness. I have something or I want something that you have. But listen to this. 
Ephesians chapter 5, Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be subject to their own husbands and everything. Sounds good. Husbands, love your wives. How? Just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. Are you willing to be crucified for your wife, men? If you're not, you're not loving them like Christ does. We should be willing to go to the cross for our wives. That is love, putting all our selfishness aside, all our wants aside, and going and dying for those that we love, not because they deserve it, because we love them. Christ loves them. Wow. For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. Therefore, just as the church is subject to Christ, again, let the wives be subject to the husbands and everything, so that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of the water by the word, that he might present her glory to himself, a glorious church, without spot or wrinkle. So husbands ought to love their own wives. You know what your job is, husband, as, as a husband to your wife? Wash her with the washing of the word. Present her. Bring out the best in her. Love her for what she for the for for your wife and the fact that she is God's daughter through Jesus Christ. He loves her, and yet so many men out there treat their wives as if they're a secondary citizen. They always want to change them. There's something that always always seems to be wrong with them, or they criticize them. They knock them down instead of building them up. Donald Gray Barnhouse used to. When he would commit or uh, do weddings once in a while, he would say, John, are you willing to be crucified for Mary? And he said, because, you know, John, a woman that knows that her husband is willing to be crucified for has a much more greater respect and act of submission to him than one that doesn't think about that. Wow. Bed is undefiled. I love it where Job says, remember, we talked about this. I've made a covenant with my eyes. I will not look upon another. Men, have we made a covenant with our eyes? Or do eyes tend to wander? Okay? Wandering eyes are easy to stop. Well, I'm, you know, I've heard so many times, well, I'm, I'm not dead. Yeah, but are you a Christian? Well, yeah, but I'm not dead. Your excuse is wrong. Wandering eyes are very easy, very easy to control. With the Spirit of God, they're very easy. Don't look. If you see something coming down the road that tantalizes your eyes, don't look. We need to do that, men. Because adultery and fornication starts as it enters in a little facility called the eye and goes to the brain and processes and it starts feeding our wicked heart. We need to stop. And there's some listening to me today to me that have wandering eyes. We need to stop. That's what a changed life also does. So we let our conduct be without covetousness. Be content with such things as you have. For he himself has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Now, I have been uh, earlier in my life out of the country a few times. And let me tell you, they don't have the safe ways and, you know, some of these places that I've been to down the Yucatan and so forth. They have the open markets and flies all over the place. You go into nice markets here and, and, and they're lined with food and whatever. And, and we seem to, the more we can attain, the more content we be. No, God says this the opposite. You can be content with me. Feed me with the things that are convenient to me. Don't feed me too much, lest I be full and say, Lord, who are you? Or don't leave me too little, so I steal and defend the name of my God. But feed me with the food convenient for me. Let me be content. Now, you as a Christian, and me, and, and myself as a Christian, God promises to take care of us. Never leave us or forsake us. Am I content with that? Or is there still a little root of bitterness or a little bit of in my heart of saying, I want more. I want more. There's something I want more. If I could just have a little bit more, I'll be fine. You know, it's the guy that, that you know, has a full plate of food and eats that full plate, and he goes, sees that out of the pork chop and says, you know what, I'm just not satisfied until I have that one. 
and it takes discipline. But God is a wonderful provider. I will never leave you or forsake you. Turn to Deuteronomy chapter 31 real quick. Put your finger there and just, just go back. I think this is absolutely wonderful. You know, a lot of times the word of God is like, well, a lot of times the word is, you put the word together, it's kind of like the, the four evangelists, how they have the different aspects of the, the sign that, that um, Pilate nailed upon the cross. Some have, this is Jesus of Nazareth, some have, he says, King of Jews, and so forth. We put them all together, and it gives the, the complete description. See, the God does that for a reason. This is Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. You, when you put it all together. Deuteronomy 31, verse 6. Be strong and of good courage. Do not fear nor be afraid of them. For the Lord your God, he is the one who goes with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. Now in the expanded understanding of this, I think that the New King James, although I love this translation, I think it leaves a little bit desired in that area. The thought is, and the wording is, in the complete context, he will not leave you, nor forsake you, nor fail you. And that word failing means that God is a consistent provider. He does not slack or lack in what he does. What he does is consistently through the ages. And you and I have, have become born again. We are the recipients of that past eternal life, and that future eternal life, and we are the recipients now of it, being born again. God is a consistent God. He will never fail us or forsake us. He said he's going to provide for us. He's going to do that in every circumstance, every single day of our life. Are we going to believe it or not? So when you go back to, to verse 13 of this 13th chapter, or excuse me, verse 5, and we see that he will never leave us or forsake us. We see that he's telling the Israelites that, but we also see that he adds in that little understanding of failing. He will not fail us. He will not leave us. His presence is constantly with us. He's not going to forsake us. Jesus said about the Holy Spirit that he will be in you and with you forever. But there's that other aspect of not failing. He never failed. Just as the Jews for 40 years had that manna fall every single day without fail until they entered that land. God is a God of non-failing. There is no failure with God. Oh, I tried that, Jesus. Uh, you know, it just didn't work for me. Well, that just shows me one thing. You never knew Jesus. That's why endurance in the Bible is such a big deal. He who tastes and sees that the Lord is good endures to the end. Wow. So he says, we're sick. So we may boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? You know, I, I uh, with jobs, what, is, what, what can man do to me? I can lose my job. I can lose my home. I can lose this and that. So what? You know, people say, well, that's so what, but is God going to allow us to fail? Look, and in, in, let me just read a few passages out of Psalm 56 that I thought was very interesting. Whenever I am afraid, I will trust in you. In God, I will praise his word. In God, I put my trust. I will not fear what flesh can do unto me. That's interesting. I praise his word. Then he goes on to say a few verses down. In God, I put my trust. I will not be afraid what man can do to me. You go to Psalm 27. The Lord is my strength and my salvation. I will not fear what man do to me. All these things in the word of God. God is not going to leave us. He's not going to forsake us. And he's definitely not going to fail us.
So we can boldly say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. What can man do to me? Is that your understanding of God in your day-to-day life? It should be. Because it's all wrapped up in God's character. And we also, we also read in Jeremiah 9 that, that that delights him, is that we understand and know who he is. This is God. This is not church. You know, this is the Lord Jesus Christ speaking in his word, and he wants you to know him intimately. Verse 7. Well, a few more minutes. Remember those who rule over you. That's, that, that is a, uh, well, back in the 80s, they had, <clears throat> excuse me, what they call a shepherding movement. It didn't last very long. It might still be going on. And the pastor was to be blindly followed. Whatever he said, you did. Whatever, he, whatever doctrine he said, you, it must be right because he's a pastor and you're wrong. He's learned it and you're not. And he got into the affairs of everyday life of people and he, he basically told them what to do and what not to do. But there's people that on their own volition blindly follow those that lead them. You know, a pastor or, or anybody, they blindly follow them because they're their pastor. I have a few friends today that they're caught up in that. And it's devastating. The attitude of somebody that is teaching or somebody that has a, a, a charge over any kind of congregation or any kind of people is the fact that, remember those who rule over you or guide you is, is what the actual wording is. Remember those who guide you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow considering the outcome of their conduct. That's one thing, reason why I am, am against these internet uh, churches, these internet pastors. I'm not saying there's not, there's good teaching on the internet. I'm not saying that at all. But some people say, well, I go to church on the internet. Yeah, that's great. But you don't know what's edited. You don't know the conduct of those that are talking. Most of these word of faith teachers, people never have met. But yet they follow them explicitly. The promises, hey, reach deep into your pockets for this ministry, and God promises to bless you a hundredfold. But yet they don't know these people. These people work on an Amway pyramid. They're at the top feeding on everybody at the bottom, and they don't see this. They don't see the brotherly love. They don't see anything. You know, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 5, he says, but I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Yet I certainly did not mean that sexually immoral people of this world, nor with covetous or extortioners or idolaters, since you would need to go out of the world. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater or a reviler or a drunkard or an extortioner. You know what extortion means? Getting gained forcibly. That's what it means. Now, we mean forcibly is muscle. Forcibly could be coercion, you know? Hey, do this, and God promises you're going to do that. It could be any way. And what I'm doing is leading up, and I know time's getting away from me, but to this this verse 7, and look at verse 17, which closely follows. Obey those who rule over you or guide you. Be submissive, for they watch out for your souls. So we're not submissive because there's some high-up pastor, they offer some promises, or they're they're scratching our itching ears, telling us what we want to hear, but they're going to have to give an account of your souls. There's the main seriousness of a pastor, or the seriousness of anybody teaching the Word of God. They must be called and ordained of God, because they're going to stand before God and give an account of how they've led how they've guided, what kind of example they have been. This is serious stuff. Wow. 
James knew this when he heard James 1, let not many of you become teachers. No, we will incur a stricter judgment. Conduct is the greatest thing. Conduct is proof, or your conversation, as the King James puts it. I like that word because it entails all areas of life. Because that's what James says shows the world that Jesus lives. You know, the world now laughs at, at Christianity. They laugh at, at somebody who claims to be a Christian or whatever because they have not, let's face it, folks, most, most examples of Christianity are not good. Not good at all. How will men know that Christ lives by our life? <clears throat> so remember, verse 7, those who have rule over you, those who guide you, who have spoken the word of God to you, whose faith follow, considering the outcome of their conduct. <clears throat> Come back to... Uh, Keep your thumb there. I just want to show you something by comparison. This is exciting. Turn to Malachi, which is the last book in the Old Testament. The last book in the Old Testament. Remember, 400 years before Christ came on the scene. 400 God says an amazing thing. Malachi chapter 3, verse 6. For I am the Lord, I do not change. He will not fail you, he will not leave you, he will not forsake you. He is an unchangeable God with an unchangeable character. That's why reading the prophets is so important. But he says that emphatically, mark it. Malachi 3, 6, I am the Lord, I do not change. Now let's go back to Hebrews 13, verse 8. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He was the same when he spoke and the universe leapt into existence. He was the same when the Israelites were in Egypt and came through the Red Sea, led through the wilderness. He was the same when those supposedly 400 years when they didn't hear so much of a prophetic word from Malachi to Matthew. He was the same as he was growing up and walking on this earth. He was the same when he's being nailed to the cross. He was the same when he was submissive to his Father's will for you and I's sake. He is the same now in heaven interceding for you and I because he loves us with undying love and he proves that by not only the scars on the body that we have for all eternity, but by who he is. He is the same all the way through creation, all the way through the end. He's not going to change. Why do we? Why do men change? Men change because they have not the Spirit of God in them. And a lot of people choose to, to fight against this. I was talking to a, a uh, I went to a track meet earlier this year, you know, for whatever reason, probably nostalgia reasons. I was talking to this individual who says, well, yeah, I'm, I'm going to go and, and uh, I'm going to go up to Vancouver. I'm going to, you know, list at some school and I'm, I'm going to be a pastor. Well, I naturally don't like to make waves talking to people. I really don't. But it was said to me, and it wasn't original with the white guy who said it to me, if you could be content being anything else, that is what you should do. If you cannot be content being anything else, God might have called you into the pastor. And that is the truth. Because it's not only fun and great, and you guys get to listen to me, and oh boy, what a guy. He studies and everything, and, and you might make a little bit of money out of the side, but the underlying thing is God is going to require of everybody what they've done and how they've lived. We'll end to verse 9. Jesus Christ, verse 8, is the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
you know, if somebody came up to you, hopefully um, you do, you can, I'm sure every one of us here can, but you would be alarmed at the people that can't. They can't prove from the scriptures why Jesus Christ is God. They can't prove from the scriptures nor give an account of why he is God. He must be God. That is, we cannot disagree on that area. That is plain all through the word of God. But Paul also writes in Ephesians chapter 4 that he gave the gifts to men. What are some of these gifts? Some of the gifts that he gave to men are the gifted men that he's given to the church. These evangelists, pastors, these teachers. Why? He gave them to the church for one sole reason. Not to entertain them, not to get your money, not to do anything else but this, for the equipping of the saints for the work of ministry. This is Ephesians 4.12, by the way. For the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Till we all come to the unity of faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man, to the measure and the stature of Christ. No longer children tossed about with every wind of doctrine. And that's what he's saying here in verse 9. Do not, do not, be, do not, be, carried, not be carried about strange doctrines. For it is good that the heart be established by grace. Not with foods which have not profited those who have been occupied with them. Wow. Thank God for the wonderful men that are in the pulpits today. Thank God for the wonderful people that are they're out on the street, the evangelists that are proclaiming the word of God. But just remember, the, wor- the worker is worthy of where he's at, not by his skill or lack of it, but by the fact that God called him and he is in the pulpit, whether people agree with him or not. Obviously, we don't sit here and tickle itching ears. Because if we did, this place would probably be full. There's 40 chairs here. They never have been full at one time. But we here at the Foundation of Life do not tickle itching ears. We say it the way it is. I am not, or any other pastor, Mike, or myself, Cam or anybody is not going to be able to stand before God and say, well, God, you know, I, I just wanted them to feel comfortable. I, I just, you know, I, I just wanted to, I didn't want to speak against idols. Or I didn't want to speak against anything else because I know they don't like it and it makes them squirm. And I don't want to make people squirm. No, we are here because we're going to stand before God and give an account of everything that has gone forth to those that God has placed us over to guide. A serious, serious uh, call. We must take it seriously. And if you're sitting under or you're listening to somebody that doesn't, get out. And this is more for the people on the internet that listen to me. Because a lot of people surf the internet and they think, wow, you know, hey, this this is a religious church or whatever. Let's listen to that. I got a solemn warning to that. That if you are listening to somebody or taking advice from somebody or instructing or getting your instruction from somebody and they don't take the word of God seriously and they don't say everything that's said from the pulpit, you take back and you search down the word of God to see that these things are so. If that's not the person of their ministry, leave. Don't give them your money. Don't give money to these people that, that promise you health and wealth because you're doing something for their ministry or for them. They need to be honorable. Follow their conduct. Are they willing to stand before God? How many of these people that are in this, this movement that want your money and that rip you off, how many people could honestly say from the heart, yes, I am willing to stand before God and give an account of how I've treated your word to the masses? We're not talking 20, 15. We're talking masses of people. Now, 
and I'll give this one illustration. We'll close. Thank you for allowing me to go farther. I, we still didn't get done. But that's okay. I'll give this one indicate one example, and it's a true example. And I'm not going to name names. All you've, but you, those of you been around know this individual by name. But there was in another country there was over a million people at this <coughs> crusade. Thousands of, I mean, just millions of probably of dollars being poured in and, and everything else. And it was a healing thing going on. This guy so supposedly got healed from this great teacher. But then he fell back and hit his head and they took him to the hospital. And on the way to the hospital, this famous, wonderful teacher, false teacher, by the way, said, don't worry, I just heard from God. It's on the internet, you can find this. This is not made up. I just heard from God, he's going to be fine, and he's going to have a lifelong ministry. The individual died on the way to the hospital. This man is a multimillionaire, getting thousands of, of money. He's, a, he's one of these faith teachers. He's, he's, you know, is that what we're to do? Can he honestly say, I'm willing to stand before God and give an account of what I've done with your precious word? That is how important conduct is. If you don't have conduct, my dad used to say something to me. He said about character. He said, if a man doesn't have character, he doesn't have anything. And I believe that. Because the character of Christ is priceless. Kim, do you want to pray? Thank you, Lord.